Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is why we exist, to focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit. Because every movie makes us feel something. Hello, Feelin' Film listeners. Welcome to our first of four special Director Battle Month episodes this August. I'm Aaron, one of your hosts, and with me, as usual, is my best friend and co-host, Patrick. Hey, everyone. Psycho was chosen out of a bracket of 16 films by the awesome members of our Facebook discussion group, and we are excited to cover this Hitchcock classic tonight. Voting has actually just ended for the second Director Battle Month episode, but if you join the group now, you can still participate in the remaining two votes. That's for the third and the fourth episodes for August, um, as well as enjoy daily conversations with an incredible group of movie lovers. So we encourage you always to come check out the Facebook discussion group. It's an ever-growing community of movie lovers and really just an awesome place to hang out. Before we get into the movie, though, Patrick, let's check out how we did on our predictions for this quadrant of the competition. To remind our listeners, we made picks on one of our FF Plus episodes a few weeks ago for how we thought the voting would go. We get one point for a right answer, uh, keeping it pretty simple, and whoever has the most points at the end of the month will buy the loser a pop figure. So my friend, I'm going to read through the winners, and then you can tell me how you did. All right. Sound good? (laughs) Okay. Yeah. I'm looking at my my bracket here and I'm like, yeah, it feels like March Madness all over again. (laughs) That's good for me. Yes, Um, it is. is. (laughs) Well, here is the way the voting turned out for what ultimately led to Psycho's victory. Psycho defeated Rear Window. This is the first round. Psycho defeated Rear Window. North by Northwest defeated Rope. Forrest Gump was picked over Flight. Who Framed Roger Rabbit took out Castaway. That was a surprise to, I think, both of us. Uh, Goodfellas beat Hugo. Taxi Driver over Shutter Island. The Martian over American Gangsta. <laughs> That's because how, how I wrote it. I said it wrong again. <laughs> uh, and uh, Kingdom of Heaven over Thelma and Louise. Uh, after that, we ended up with Psycho beating North by Northwest. We had Forrest Gump beat... Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, we had Goodfellas over Taxi Driver. We had The Martian beating Kingdom of Heaven. And in the semifinals, we had Psycho beating Forrest Gump and Goodfellas beating The Martian. And then in the final, Psycho beat out Goodfellas uh, to become the winner for this bracket. So how did you do out of your 15 possible points? I, I felt decent. Uh, I got 10. <laughs> well, that is decent. That's like, you know, 66%, right? I mean, that's... Well, if, if, if 66% is good, it's only better if it's more than yours for this round. It's not. Um, I, I did so. exceptionally, exceptionally well in this round. Um, it was not perfect. That Who Framed Roger Rabbit beating Castaway was a, a very surprise result for me i did not expect that one so i got that wrong um, and i also thought that shutter island and it's more recency kind of being a newer movie was going to beat out taxi driver in the group but taxi yeah, driver uh won that one and those are the only two i missed patrick i actually got every single one right from the four 
all the way down to Psycho to the winner. I was perfect. So I got 13 out of 15. Very cool. So you had Goodfellas beaten what would have been Shutter Island? Um, no, I had I had all of the four right. I had Psycho, Forrest Gump, Goodfellas, and The Martian in the final four. Like I had all of them correct. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I only missed those two first round matchups. That was it. Okay. Well, congratulations on the first round matchup. Thank you. So I I, I that... take a thirteen to ten lead into episode two voting, okay. which. I can tell you probably is not going to go as well. I did not feel nearly as good about that second quadrant. It included uh, Tarantino, Wes Anderson, John Hughes, Linkletter, some others. I, I don't think I'll do as well. You probably will catch me, I think, in that one. But Maybe. We'll see. We'll, we'll see. We'll find out. Uh, well, that I also want to – what's that? Nothing. Go ahead. Well, I just want to real quick also mention that our August donor pick movies will be sent out for vote to our lovely patrons – tomorrow on the first they always have from the first to the 10th to vote and pick which movie will be coming in august this month we will be doing classics so the five movies we're putting up for vote are the wizard of oz to kill a mockingbird the graduate network and the french connection that's going to be really cool and we're looking forward to covering one of those our bonus content for august i'm actually also really 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 looking forward to we're going to be doing a 10-year retrospective, and we're going to go over our favorite films of 2000 – no, our favorite films of, yes, 2009. So that's 10 years ago. I was – for some reason, I was thinking 20, and I was about to start talking about the Blair Witch Project, and then I realized <laughs> 10 is not 20, and 2009 is not 1999. But 2009 <laughs> is what we're going to talk about, and we're going to do this every year. So every August – we're going to try and do bonus content with uh, our 10-year retrospective from the, the year previous, which we think will be a lot of fun. And that's a bonus conversation, so patrons will have uh, express access to that, uh, only them, in the Patreon feed. You can go to our Patreon, patreon.com slash feelandfilm, to become a supporter. For as little as one buck a month, you can get all of the bonus episodes that we ever do and we ever have done, as well as be a voter in these polls and help pick the movie that gets covered. So we encourage you to do that. We would love you to be part of that family. With that said, Patrick, it's time for the spoiler alert. <laughs> I don't know who exists in the world that doesn't know about Psycho. We're actually going to talk about that specifically. But if you haven't seen Psycho and somehow were not part of the zeitgeist that understands this movie and culture and, and has picked up on the clues of its twists and turns and all of the good stuff inside of it well that's amazing and you should probably go watch it immediately before you get it spoiled but otherwise uh, carry on we'll get going so patrick what is your one word takeaway i came away with the word blueprint as i was watching this which this will be a shocker was my first time to watch it ever um i put on the lens of just going into it as blind as I could, knowing that it was very iconic, very familiar with the shower scene, very familiar with the name Norman Bates. But the as I was watching it, I couldn't help but think that this was a blueprint for a lot of things, a blueprint for one great filmmaking. We've got Alfred Hitchcock in the director's chair, but also a great blueprint for how to craft a great horror thriller. I think a lot of your modern filmmakers who understand about suspense how to hang on a shot for a significant amount of time to give the audience that bit of tension. 
the different types of dialogue that were used, the way in which mannerisms were used, the nonverbal cues from Norman specifically, and even the use of music to elevate some of the some of the scenes very much made this feel like a blueprint for how you make a great suspense thriller. As someone who is into filmmaking, I looked at this and I tried not to look at it from a filmmaker's lens because I didn't want to just focus on the technical stuff, but I couldn't help it at times because those things started popping out to me a lot more than a modern day thriller. And I'm going to say this not as a detriment to Albert Hitchcock, but the story is pretty simplistic. I mean, it's a, there's a lot of basic plot points here. There's no, there's a couple of twists here and there, but it sits at just over an hour and a half and there's not a ton of depth. You don't have a wide range of characters, maybe five or six total. But all the characters and everything that's used in the movie feels very intentional, very purposeful. You have uh, set pieces that are shot in a way that give that sense of eeriness and dread. The Norman Bates Motel is one of those set pieces that is very iconic along with uh, Norman and his mom's house. But when you actually watch the movie and you see it all put together, it really forms what I think is the makings of how filmmaking should be done, at least in this particular genre. So blueprint was mine. That's a great word. I don't remember what yours was when I looked earlier today at the notes, but it changed. And it did. It, I like this yeah, one it was. Yeah, I think, I think this one fits more for what I was uh, pulling away from it. So good stuff. Well, you actually just used mine in yours. And mine is iconic. For me, seeing Psycho for the very first time only a couple of years ago, so don't feel bad, Patrick. It took me a while as well. It was a strange experience. Um, Despite my usual efforts to avoid spoilers, it was simply impossible not to know certain things. Like I said, this movie is part of the cultural zeitgeist. Um, The score, we all know. I can't do it. That was really, really bad. But that... That uh, needle drop. You know who can do that? Garth Algar from Wayne's World. That's better. Much better than whatever I just did. But that is iconic. Uh, The shower scene. We all know the shower scene. And the twist ending. This is like the key pieces of this movie. It's built on these things. It would be like in modern day watching Sixth Sense and knowing the ending, which sadly I did. I already knew the ending and it was spoiled for me too before I got around to seeing it. It changes everything about how you watch that. And I'm jealous of audiences that got to see this in its day, right? It just in 1960, like being able to experience it. So for me, it's very iconic. You know, I wasn't shocked at the way the story progressed because I knew what I knew. Um, it is one of those rare old films that I think nearly everyone knows and can talk about. You mentioned the Bates Motel. Just the name Bates Motel is basically now synonymous with a place that you'd likely get murdered. You know, if you say something is relatable to the Bates Motel, that's not a good thing. People know what that means. Um, and that theme, that theme is, is definitely unmistakable. What makes me really happy though is that despite knowing what I was going into, Hitchcock's brilliant filmmaking still allowed me to experience the intensity, the paranoia, the uncomfortableness, and the mystery of the story. And so that technical aspect uh, really shines through, I think, in this particular movie when you're watching it. 
after knowing what happened. So, yeah, I'm really glad that I did finally get around to watching it a couple of years ago, and I'm happy to get a chance to talk about it with you now. Now, as we get off here to start, I want to mention a couple of pieces of history that people may or may not know. If you've never listened to a podcast about Psycho, you probably don't know these details. Um, if you have, you may already have heard them. I'm sorry for repeating this to you, but I thought they were really cool factoids to share. For one thing, Psycho was literally the movie, Patrick, that changed the way theaters approached films. So when Psycho came out, you could buy a ticket and walk in and out of a theater at any time. A movie would play on repeat with some reels in between, some like WB cartoons and commercials and things like that, um, maybe some news, and then the movie would start again. You could just walk in anytime, sit down. You, we see this in a lot of old movies, actually. We see characters walk into theaters mid-movie all the time, and I've always wondered, like, why are they doing that? Well, that was the way films were made. Psycho was marketed differently, and Hitchcock told theaters, he's like, you will not allow people to come into my movie late. And there was marketing specifically telling filmgoers that if you were late, you weren't going to get in. And they posted ticket takers and people to watch for people and wouldn't let them in after the start of the movie because he didn't want them to miss it. He wanted the experience to be preserved. And so that was the start of theaters forcing you really to kind of, or trying to force you kind of starting the trend of like people really becoming at the movie when it started. I thought that was pretty cool. He basically started this attempt to start quelling potential spoilers. And even went further than that. So when he decided to make Psycho, and this came on the heels of a lot of success, having made North by Northwest with much bigger budget and, you know, very, very different type of picture, more globe trotting. It was in color, a lot of action. He secretly bought the rights to the novel Psycho for like 9,000 bucks. Apparently the author was pretty upset when he found out later down the line that it was Hitchcock that bought it because he felt like he could have gotten a lot more money for it. But Hitchcock bought the rights to the novel, and then he mobilized a team of people to go out into the world and buy up all of the copies of Psycho they could find. And so they went out and tried to buy every physical copy of this book that was out there. And they largely succeeded in getting it big time, like, off the market in order to keep the surprise at bay. So people who read the novel, there would be less of them, and they wouldn't be able to know what they were getting into when they saw the movie. I just thought would, that was amazing. Yeah, would would this have been the start of the twist ending as far as filmmaking goes? Would this have been the, the stamp? To, I, I don't to... know if it was the first, but it was definitely the first big one. It was the mm -hmm. one that I think most people point to in film history as far as being like the event surprise movie that really took care to keep that intact um, and prevent people from being spoiled. And I just, I thought all that stuff was really fascinating to be talking about a movie that did this in 1960 when here we are in our world today where this is a huge problem. I was thinking about that as I was watching it because <clears throat> as I said before, there's a simplicity to the story and not being overly complex because when I think of like thrillers or twist endings, I think of M. Night Shyamalan, I think of Christopher Nolan, who I think are obviously protégés in their respective fields to Hitchcock and probably were influenced by Psycho. 
But I remember thinking, okay, usually when I watch a movie at home, I'll pull up IMDb and check out some of the trivia, see kind of the behind the scenes stuff. And I remember thinking, okay, we've got a shower scene. So are we going to get anything graphic because there's stabbings? I mean, I know that's going to happen. And it was surprised. It wasn't surprisingly tame, but it got me thinking about the fact that I guess I, I think back to the sixties and I feel like there's a naive part of me that says filmmakers weren't as smart as they are now. And I think that's a, a real problem and why people need to go back and watch older movies because directors back in the day are just as smart were just as smart and just as innovative in terms of their storytelling as storytellers are today. We talked a little bit about that on the Once Upon a Time episode where Tarantino brings people in to his 1960s world as a way to show them, look, this is where I came from. You like these movies because this is what I grew up experiencing. And I think that it's important to be able to watch Psycho, whether you know the twists or not, to be able to appreciate outside the box thinking when it comes to not only filmmaking, but as you've said, distributing that and marketing it and selling it in a way that feels like kind of like an event, like a, like a secret that, Oh my gosh, this is, this is pretty, this is pretty spectacular and pretty special because I can't go into the theater after it starts. What's up with this movie? And I think it's pretty fantastic. I think box office money is a huge part of this equation in modern day, especially because if you keep your movie secret right up until the time that it hits theaters, you're losing out on opening weekend ticket sales and you're relying on word of mouth to sell your movie. You're not marketing. You're not able to market it in the same way. Your marketing has to be very carefully done. And I think there's a lack of skill in that in Hollywood today. I mean, we just don't see it happen very often. You know, it does occasionally. I think Marvel has started to kind of go the direction of just straight up lying. We're just going to misdirect and put fake stuff in our trailers to trick you so that you won't be surprised or so you can still be surprised, which I don't really love. But I think that that's part of the, the challenge for modern day filmmakers. Well, I think it's the pressure of having to market. We talked about this after, after Infinity War. And I think Don Shanahan said this in our Facebook group. It would be epic if between Infinity War and Endgame, we got zero trailers. We got zero marketing. In order to essentially have fun and test the market to see how big is this movie going to be without marketing. I mean, if you had zero trailers or any kind of publicity for Endgame coming up, you would have probably gotten the same, if not more people in the theaters because of the trust that the MCU has built and the grandioseness of this story that came to fruition in the form of Endgame. I don't know that you could do that with Psycho because, one, we don't have that kind of spread, that kind of communication uh, surplus like we do now. But there is something to be said about trusting your audience and not having to worry about opening box office numbers because there are movies that have come out that have gone on to be incredibly popular in the theater because of word of mouth. And I think that's a valuable thing that people maybe in Hollywood need to understand is that word of mouth is still a powerful tool. I remember when my big fat Greek wedding came out and it was a small indie movie stayed in the theater for probably like almost like four or five months and actually gained more box office value as the weeks went on because people were like, 
what is this? Oh, this is really interesting. This is funny. You should go see this. I went to go see it a couple of times myself. Same thing with uh, Cloverfield. This trailer pops up a week before the movie actually comes out. The intrigue of that, and when you show very little, has value in and of itself. And so if your movie is is marketed that way, I think it's got legs to be able to have that limited amount of of exposure, I guess you could say, prior to its release. If it's good. Yeah, if yes. it's good and the studio trusts you. And and so, you know, a person like Hitchcock can do that. Not everyone can do that. You've got to have the clout because the studio needs to hope that they can sell tickets before the word of mouth potentially goes bad. That's part of the problem because they need to hedge their bet and they need to still make money even if people don't like it. Um, The other thing real quick that Hitchcock did is apparently he had all of the crew on set actually take an oath every single day before filming swearing to keep every detail and plot point of the film a secret. So he was methodical, man. And I just, I loved hearing that. And I thought it was fascinatingly ironic based on the results. Like the, the it, we're sitting here in 2019 and everybody knows everything about this movie, even if you haven't seen it. <laughs> so, um, you know, it was a weird twist of fate for them in that regard. Well, there's no doubt in my opinion, and obviously yours as well, you said that the technical brilliance of Hitchcock in this film is present um, with regards to the use of color and shadow and angle of filmmaking and just the way that shots are framed, all of that good stuff. I will say that other podcasts are probably more suited to breaking down his mastery on a technical level. I feel weird because now I'm doing this like two episodes in a row uh, where I'm plugging another random podcast for people to talk. We don't always do this, but there's one called Inside Psycho that is a super in-depth look at this movie that I would highly recommend checking out um, it, it is really really deep and goes into all the cool stuff about technical aspect of filmmaking that you might want to listen to um, but here we always like to talk mostly about how the movie made us feel and so i just wanted to make sure everyone knew up front like we're not not intentionally you know avoiding talking about how amazing certain shots are it's just not what we normally do um, so story here we go we meet marion when she's having this hotel room fling with Sam. And it takes off us on this journey with her. She eventually steals the money, $40,000, from this client that comes into her office and brings it in in cash. And she runs off to try and buy her way to a happy life with Sam, essentially. She's driving to California to be with him. She thinks that this money is going to solve all their problems because Sam is feeling like he's in debt to his ex-wife and doesn't want to take the plunge to have a public relationship with her. So Marion doesn't last the entire film, shocker. And I'm curious, how did you feel about the way that her character is presented to us that sets up the reasons that she steals the money? Like, do you think she's justified in wanting to be in a public relationship? And then how did you feel about her choice to take the money and where it ultimately ends up you know, leading her to costing her life? I think the simplicity of the story is a little bit frustrating to me because of the fact that there's a lot more going on that we don't really get a chance to see. We open up with that shot of them kind of finishing their makeout session or whatever we're going to call it, their little rendezvous. And we kind of go on the assumption that they're cheating on their respective folks. And we find out through the conversation that they're just genuinely 
happy with each other, but not happy with their lives apart from each other. And they're conflicted because this is the only part of their lives that appeared to be valuable to them. And it was, it was weird for me to kind of jump in at that point because I kind of had preconceived notions based on what I was seeing and they kind of got thrown out the window. So when she goes back to the, to the office, I started to feel a sense of her just wanting to get out. And I started building my own interpretation of her backstory based on what I was seeing. It sounded like from what I could tell, she lived a safe life and that this rendezvous was kind of the the, the excitement of her life, the one thing that gave her a thrill. I don't know that she was justified in spending the money. I think it was kind of twofold. I think one, it was to get a means to an end so that she could live this life with him. But I think it was also something that would give her excitement. I think it was one of those things where it was out of the ordinary, having that guy come in and just flash that cash willy nilly and not even breaking a sweat kind of put a, put a spark under her. And I think from, from my sake, she would, or from, from my take, she was kind of duly motivated one to make this relationship work and not let money be a factor, but to also let that adventure kind of carry her because stealing money is going to create an adventure. It will probably lead to prison or something like that. But I think for her, she needed something to give her some, some kind of excitement in her life. And aside from this relationship, I don't think she had much of that. Yeah. I, I got a very similar vibe to her characters and you're right. Simplistic is a great word. This is not a deep, complex character drama, really. I mean, there are things that Hitchcock creates under the surface that you can go back to and I think start to pick up on multiple viewings. Um, one such thing is there's some allusions to mama issues early on. We, we have two situations where both Marion is mentioning, you know, her mom, or I think it, it is it her mom or Sam's mom, and um, how it, I think it's how the mom is coming between the relationship. And then there's another conversation about a mom from her coworker, and it feels like he's planting these seeds early on about characters that kind of share similar issues in their life. Um, and then obviously kind of teasing what's going to ultimately end up happening with the Norman character. But I was really shocked in the beginning of this because of how illicit this scene is for 1960. She is in her underwear. Like we start off right off the bat. Boom. And she's in bed with another man. And, and she's in bed with a man in a hotel room out of wedlock. And that in 1960 was a much bigger deal to put on a movie screen than it would be today. Today, no one blinks and you're like, oh, why is she wearing clothes? <laughs> I mean, that's the more logical reaction to today's cinema is like, oh my gosh, she's actually wearing a bra and panties. Thank you, movie, <laughs> for not making her naked for no reason, where it was the absolute reverse in this time. So it's meant to be this illicit tryst. And I use the word tryst. You actually asked me, um, why I was using that before we 
got on the mic. Because you like smart vocabulary words, <laughs> would you like? That's part of it. Yeah, I want to yeah. sound like I know what I'm talking about, even when I don't. But um, the reason is because a tryst is referencing a secret love or secret relationship. I was going to say love affair, but that's the point. Is like when I first watched this scene, I immediately am drawn to like, feeling like it's a love affair. It feels like they're cheating or hiding something, right? They're not. They're two single people who can go to a hotel room and do whatever they want. They're adults. But it's treated as this – they're hiding something. Again, a theme that Hitchcock is dropping that's going to lead and continue on throughout the film once we get to Norman. I love that. Um, I also really enjoy the fact that Marion's character starts to sort of – express the change in color so she's wearing white underwear in the beginning i believe she even has like a white purse or bag these things change to dark colors once she gets the money and moves on into the hotel or moves on into the uh the bates motel like star wars so she's clearly being corrupted in a sense by this decision and i'll tell you man i think the way this goes down is pretty intriguing because who who among us hasn't ever probably considered taking something that wasn't theirs now forty thousand dollars is a big jump for people to consider that's a huge difference that's a little bit of a life-changing decision probably grand larceny much bigger penalty it's a lot different than you know somebody left five bucks in their wallet grab that because you want to go to mcdonald's on your way home and you're broke huge difference there but i think People can relate to that feeling like, you know, if I just had money, if I just had this thing, I could get out of this situation, I could make it better. Her real beef here is with Sam. It's not about money. It's about Sam's willingness and decision and choice to, like, put her first. And to he's not choosing to make her worth the risk, in my opinion. And so I, I have a lot of empathy for Marion, personally. And I feel like it's tragic because she's doing this really dangerous, horrible thing in order to try and buy her way into respectability in this relationship when she shouldn't have to. Well, exactly right. I was going to say that she is demeaning herself because he has placed the value of money above her. And he might think he's doing something noble. And there's a great line where he says, well, I guess if we're going to if we're if this is going to work. Then once I make the alimony checks, you can lick the stamps. And she basically says, I'll do that. You know, she doesn't see an intrinsic, she sees an intrinsic value in the relationship and wanting him to commit to her. And it's demeaning for her to have to basically become the breadwinner and become the breadwinner so illegally and fight off this paranoia and fight off all these things that are happening to her that lead that she thinks will lead to her eventual happiness i would say if i were to play out that story if it didn't play out the way it did the money would be gone within a year and they'd be back in their same place because he has no motive to to do anything to get out of whatever it is he's gonna he's currently in and i think that that says something about he's just non-committal he's using this as an excuse the fact is he likes these illicit getaways and just breaking away from business because she's his plaything. She's like 
she's the look. I'll go back. She, she's the girlfriend. She's not the wife. And personal story. Whenever my wife and I were dating, we always go back to this when we when we talk about our marriage versus prior to that, because the one of the places of conflict we have is our married life is different than our dating life. When we dated, the reason why it was different, one of the reasons why was because I would kiss her goodnight and I would go home. And my life would continue on either with a bowl of chips and a video game or sleep or something else that was independent of her. Now, our relationship is sharing the same bed, sharing the same house, being parents to a six-year-old. And so a lot of that stuff has either gone away, doesn't exist anymore, or it's changed. So for instance, we record at 10 o'clock my time on Sunday nights, Wednesday nights, whenever we do this. Those nights she understands are my podcast nights. She goes to bed. But there are times when she wants me to go to bed with her because she likes having her husband next to her. And these are things that I had to adjust to and continue to have to flesh out and say, she's important enough to me to make those kinds of choices that I don't have to stay up late every night, that I can do these things. Even if I'm not that tired, I will go and go to bed with her because it makes her happy. And I think that Sam is missing that point. He's he's basically um, getting the cow and the milk in this kind of relationship, whereas she's like, no, I I need more. And she's willing to rob and steal and go through all this paranoia to get it. It is, I completely agree with you. And it is a bit, a little bit surprising to me that she does go through that length though, because she seems to understand and recognize this is what's happening. Like you said, the, I'll lick the stamps line is in there. They also have this great moment where he's complaining about those same debts to his ex-wife and he's saying he can't afford to get married. And because of these debts, and Marion says, point blank to him, I pay too. those who meet in hotel rooms. Like she she calls him out on it. And I love that. She's a strong character. And so that I think that's why I just feel so tragic. Like, man, I feel like she's she's on the right track. She's pushing back. She's not going to take it. And then the devil dangles this quick out in front of her. And it's like we're all challenged with do we take that? Do we want to take that the easy way? And, of course – where does that path of money ultimately always lead, right? To death, quite literally, in her case. Um, so moving on, I want to talk a little bit about the section of her going to the motel. This, if we were going to use like a part of the film as a connecting point, like this would be mine. I absolutely love this section of the film. It's my favorite part between the money, getting the money, and getting to the base motel. I absolutely love it. It is one of my favorite parts of cinema, I think, ever. I think it is absolutely amazingly made by Hitchcock. Um, we spend this time with Marion as she is traveling away. And I'm just curious if you felt the paranoia as much as I did, because for me, it was incredibly intense, like palpable. I, I felt it mostly at the at the car dealership. And I like the fact that we didn't see her continue to look behind her to show off that paranoia. She gave it away with her body language. She fidgeted with her hands a little bit. You could see her with the car salesman. And she is as calm as she can be in this situation. She's not overacting. And I think that's what sells it for me is someone who is trying to keep a cool head, but at the same time make this transaction of like, 
I just want to sell this car. No, you don't need to. I don't need to drive it. I think this is fine. So that whole sequence where she's having this conversation with the salesman, he kind of sees her as, hmm, if I check the registration, would this be under your name? She goes, of course it would. And again, she says it calmly, but you can see it in her face that she is just sweating bullets. Like, you know, emotionally, metaphorically speaking, I didn't see her sweat. But I think that sequence in particular, when you have those guys and then you have the officer lurking, I say lurking, the dude was just standing straight up like, I'm right here. Can you see me? I thought that was probably the most tense scene because of the fact that we had all those players in there. I'm kind of, you know, gripping my fist going, get the car, get the car, get the car. And when she finally drives off, I kind of breathe a sigh of relief. That's that's probably the most tense moment for me. Yes, I think that is something else that Hitchcock does multiple times this film. I love that you brought it up. You are feeling a sense of relief that the criminal is getting away. And you feel it again, or at least I do, later on in the film when Norman is getting rid of the car. There's a brief pause and stall where he's putting it into the swamp and it stops going down. And he looks around and he's nervous and you realize, like, he's like, what the heck am I going to do? It's, he's just spent literally 10 minutes cleaning up, by the way. It's like 10 minutes long. It's insane. And he doesn't know the money's in the trunk. Like, the money is a complete afterthought at that point in the film. But, like, the car stops going down. And he's like, what am I – he's – you can tell he's wrestling with it. I feel as a viewer, I get that same sense of sympathy for the villain where I'm like, oh, my gosh, go down. Oh, my gosh, go down. Like, why do I want the car to go down? Like, I should want the car to stay up so that he gets caught. There's a dead body in the car, right? Um, but Hitchcock does it masterfully to where – even when you know someone has done something wrong, you're able to sort of sympathize with them for reasons and you find yourself rooting for that. I, I love all the, all everything about that whole paranoia section to me. I just think it's incredibly well generated. We get a really good sense that she is hyper aware. As soon as she starts to leave, you can tell in the way he, he shoots the movie. She notices people looking at her and the way that the cop's face is in close-up when he wakes her up on the side of the road, it was almost like a jump scare from 1960, it felt like. Um, and, and his stalking of her and following her for a bit, I, one of my first thoughts was like, is that even legal? Can the kind of cop do this? Again, I'm thinking like in terms of 2019, what would the conversation around this be if this was to happen? I, I think it's awesome how smart she is. How, how she thinks about going into a dealer to get a new car and switch things up. Like for someone who just made this theft on the fly with seemingly no history of this stuff, she's figuring things out as she goes. Yeah. And here's this was my one word takeaway before I, I switched it was methodical. I think the characters in this movie, not just Norman Bates, but her are very methodical and surprisingly that way, knowing the situation that they're in. I don't think that I've seen people who steal something unless they just have a history of theft that can pull off those scenes the way that Marion does at getting the car. Even when she's asked by the by the cop why she's sleeping in the car, she says, yeah, I pulled off. Uh, I got tired. And she goes, well, he goes, well, you know, there's a motel. There's several motels around the around the area. And she goes, well, I just wanted to I didn't think I was going to sleep that long. Is that a, is that a crime? And. She's not she's not trying to get on to him, but she's just asking the question. So the way in which she actually 
communicates with this cop is very methodical. It's very much calm, cool, collected. But you got to believe she is just getting uh, so paranoid on the inside. And she, just, and she even says, can I go now? Is that, is that cool? And then, of course, we get the scene just after that where she's looking in the rearview mirror and she watches him. And her body language does something really amazing, Aaron. When he pulls off from the exit, you see her shoulders go, like they just go down. Like she's now released all that tension that she had, which I connect back to the moment that she started talking to him. And I felt like maybe I had a little bit of that tension as well because she just encapsulates that so well. Yeah. Oh, she does. She brings that. It's a guilt and a nervousness that we can relate to. Not because we've all stolen $40,000, because we've all done something that we didn't want to get caught. And we've all been in the position probably where we might get caught and it was scary. And we were, in, you know, taking those, having those feelings that Marianne had. And I think that's why it's so relatable. And you're right. It's, it's awesome to see when she gets that relief and it's, it's easy to connect with her there and want that relief as well. And I love the way that she goes on with the rain coming and she's driving and she's having trouble seeing because she's driving so long in a row and without resting and her eyes or her eyesight's going out and there's just these blinding lights are bothering her. It is awesome looking to watch. And the Bernard Herman score is perfect. It just raises that intensity as she's driving uh, through the night to try and get away as fast as possible from these situations where she was almost getting caught. I love it. I love the lighting, the framing, the score. It, it is all really just masterful. And of course, that leads us up to one of the most famous shots in the movie, which is the windshield wipers going and the rain and the sign of the base motel with vacancy um, lit up. And she pulls in and there we go. And we're off to meeting Norman, who is really seemingly pretty nice. You know, I, I'd i forgotten how good of a performance after seeing this the first time. I love uh, Janet Lee's performance as Marion. And I hated the fact that she was gone in half this film because I wanted more of her. I thought she was really great. But uh, Anthony Perkins, I believe it is, who played Norman, he is amazing. Like This, this performance is wonderful. And he never really did anything else that great. I think he might have done one other picture that he got Oscar nominated for, I believe. Um, but other than that, he didn't do a lot. But um, yeah, he he kills it here. And it's a really great introduction to him. Uh, and we're going to skip over some of the middle scene here and what takes place because we're going to talk about it later. Um, but we just will, you know, he meets her. He ends up telling her about his taxidermy. Lots of little clues are dropped. We meet him talking to her mother, his mother. We see her hearing him talking to his mother, I guess, through the window. Um, and then all of this leads up to, of course, the shower scene, the murder, and then we don't know what's happened. We don't know if it was his mom. We don't know what the heck is going on or why she got murdered. And the second half of the film for me, Patrick, really felt like a distinct shift. Not just because, you know, Marianne is dead, but 
the way the movie handles dealing with the aftermath of the murder and his ultimate eventual arrest, it felt very tonally different and it felt like more of an investigative procedural movie than this intense thriller that we got in the first half. And it actually, the first time I watched this, it was, a, it was jarring to me and because they didn't know it was coming. And I, and I still, to this day, vastly, I think, prefer the first half of this film. And it feels almost like a slowdown that I have to adjust to every time I'm watching this. Did you ex- experience anything like that? I did. And it reminded me a lot of how I felt watching Full Metal Jacket, having two distinct halves. Even though our friend Matthew Modine said it's still th- a three-act structure, I would agree on a on a technical scale. But the fact is, we're talking about two distinct stories. In fact, it got me thinking about The Twilight Zone or about these anthology series that we like. And I'm going, oh, are we getting are we getting like episode two of Psycho? Is this is this a two-part deal? But yeah, it did. It, it turned into a procedural, but... In its defense, I think those themes were still consistent with the hint drops of the mother, of the paranoia. And I think what I liked about the second half was that emphasis on Norman Bates. He became the centerpiece of the back half, where Marion was the centerpiece of the front half. Norman Bates, who I think is reincarnated as Andrew Garfield now, so he does have a second career. Totally agree with you. A similarity is striking. And um, I think that Hitchcock intentionally focuses on him in the back half. I, I can't answer the question. A uh, friend of the show, Reed Lackey, would probably be able to answer this just in amazing essay form on why the distinction. Was there a distinction? Are we seeing these two halves for a reason? Was that hitchcock's intention why didn't we just start with norman bates because it seems like this is his story because the biggest surprise for me aaron was the iconic scene that everybody knows if you hadn't seen the movie you assume it happens when at the end of the movie at the end right and when i'm watching this and i see it happen and then i see oh my gosh there's 45 minutes left what are we doing here and then it turns into an investigation i think this is where I got a little off track with it because I didn't know how to feel. I felt the paranoia of the first half. It was still there in tidbits, but I didn't really know where was I supposed to connect? What, what was I, was I supposed to feel empathy or fear towards Norman Bates? Uh, does Sam still have a dog in this fight? I mean, we know that that Marion's dead. So what is the story to this point? And I like the back half and I love the exploration of Norman, but by seeing that back half the way it was, I wanted a full movie about that. Like I wanted more fleshed out Norman Bates, but I'm glad we got Marion, but I kind of, I kind of wish we had a full fleshed out story about Marion and, and her story or a full fleshed out story about Norman Bates and his backstory. And I felt like we kind of got half of one, half of the other, and then a full movie because of it. I would agree um, completely with that. And from what I understand, Psycho 2, according to friend of the show, Reed Lackey, who has a great podcast episode on Psycho, I will add, um, on his show, The Fear of God podcast. He loves it so much, they made the Psycho episode their 100th 
episode. So it was their special one. Um, and I would highly recommend that. But he does talk about the distinction in the halves um, quite a bit. And he said, sorry, I was getting off track. Psycho 2 is actually really good. And Psycho 2 dives a lot more into Norman. It's basically Norman's backstory. So if you're interested in Norman, Patrick, and anyone listening, maybe check out Psycho 2, because apparently it's not that bad. Something that I think I will probably eventually do for myself. Um, I, parts, parts of this just didn't... I guess they just don't grab me as much. And I don't know if it's because I'm meeting new characters that I have to follow in the middle of a movie, like Arbogast... Um, the investigator, Sam and Lila show up, Lila being Marion's sister. And it's just, it's weird. It's just a structure that's not normal <laughs> to meet characters like this in the second half of a film. And suddenly they're the, the focus of the film. But I do enjoy the scenes um, that lead up to the plot development. Like Norman acting really suspiciously when he's questioned by Arbogast is an awesome scene. Seeing him stutter, um, this is one one point where I would say I pointed to how great his performance is by by Anthony Perkins. And I love how smartly this film is written. Whether it's the screenplay adapting it or whether it's the original novel that this language comes from. But Arbogast interrogating Norman, it's, it's smart. He feels like a real investigator and not a hack. He says, did she make any phone calls? Norman says, no. Did you spend the night with her? Seemingly an odd question. Norman's like, no. And he goes, then how do you know she didn't make any phone calls? And it's like this, you're getting Norman stuck in his own web of lies, unbeknownst to him. And when you take those questions at face value, just yes and no and not connecting them, they don't have the ability to give you any information. Well, but yeah. He uses them to like judge the reaction, and that tells him more than the answer itself ever could. Arbogast is another one of those methodical characters. He says early on, I'm not a cop, I'm a detective. And I think in a way, he's not just making the distinction for distinction's sake. I think he's saying to Norman, you're going to get better questions from me. A detective is going to ask more pointed questions. He's not going to give you the the riot act and put you under a lamp and say, where were you on the night of blah, 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 blah. I like the fact that this detective was very pointed in what he was saying, very strategic in the way he was asking them. Because I'm watching this and I'm watching Norman and all of his little nervous tics that are happening. And I feel like, based on earlier conversations that we see him in, that he can get out of this easily. I mean, he is a suave guy. He's calm, cool, collected. But there's something that's getting at him. And as the detective asks more questions... He gets a little bit more irritated. The same thing happens with Sam later on where Sam starts poking him about money and about buying another a new hotel. And then he hits the mother button and that starts setting Norman off. But what I think is fantastic is the way in which we see these questions kind of stack onto each other. And so the detective is building a case. He's building a scene. He's painting a picture. And we're seeing that picture being painted sort of Bob Ross style, where we're seeing the trees come in and we're seeing the the clouds start to form. By the end of the conversation, we know now what the detective does, even though we knew it all before, but to see it kind of dissected that way, I thought was a really, really fantastic uh, exchange of dialogue between him and Norman. 
Yeah, I did too. I really did. And it was and it made me sad when Arbogast, you know, bites the dust and is ultimately killed. I don't like that. But good people are dying when, all over the place, man. When you sneak into people's houses, you know, you're just asking I mean, for it. You are kind of asking for it. Well, the film wraps up. Eventually, we get to the big surprise, which is that Norman's mom is dead. We learn the backstory that she poisoned her lover and killed herself and he. And Norman finds them there in their bed together. And now he's portraying his mother and killing anyone who essentially leads him to feel sexual desire, which he believes is something his mom would not want. So how did you feel about the way the reveal comes? And having not seen the film, but I guess knowing that was coming, did that still hit for you at all? (laughs) Half of it did, half of it didn't. (laughs) I, I found myself laughing because that slow turnaround of the dead mother was fantastic. Norman running down the stairs with his dress half on and his his wig kind of messed up got me laughing a little bit. It felt a little anticlimactic because he looked kind of cartoonish at that point. I, I know that wasn't the intent, but when you have the other two scenes where presumably he's the one committing the murders he's in shadows he's in his full garb and he's more mysterious this one just looks like crazy person coming down the stairs ready to attack the lady and so it felt a little b-movie-esque especially when sam comes around and is like Aah! and it's like this it's really not great choreography for 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 that particular scene and it just hangs there for about five or six seconds that struggle until eventually you know he's he's taken down it was a little anticlimactic I think it would have been better, this is me looking at it through a 21st century lens, but it would have been better to have that reveal and have her back up and then have Norman grab her with the wig instead of just running downstairs like he's just on fire. But, you know, overall, it it worked fine. Yeah, I thought it was pretty goofy myself. Um, I I didn't particularly love it. I mean, I, I was grinning. I thought, you know, now we're doing some older, cheesy movie stuff that is not anything like what I would see in a movie that was made today. But, you know, it's effective. It gets to the point. Um, and it brings us to really what the the real ending is. You know, the shock of that, to me, is kind of not as important because there is an outstanding way this film ends. And that is with this awesome conversation at the courthouse. The psychiatrist is making the case that Norman didn't kill Marion, that Mrs. Bates actually killed Marion. And when he first says that, I think it really gets your attention. First of all, it's just an interesting way to shift the film from a shock like that. And now it's like, feels like it's going to be going into a court procedural, but it's really not. It's just this one moment. But this explanation that he gives I wondered how you felt about it, and did it alter your perspective of Norman leaving the film experience? Loved, loved, loved the scene. It was my connecting point runner-up, and I say that very biasedly because it was a psychiatrist and having a psych degree. I'm like, yeah, explain it. Tell us all what's going on here. There were so many moments about that conversation or that monologue that made me made me smile, when he was asked, so Norman killed uh, killed her. Well, no, maybe he did, or maybe he didn't. 
And I like that the psychiatrist is actually validating this mental illness and he's explaining to us these two halves that are in conflict with each other and how now mother has taken over that other half. And so to me, I think we have this, this may be a commentary on the misunderstanding of the mental health uh, community, maybe at the time. I don't know. I'm projecting, obviously. But I love the fact that we have a guy who's able to basically wrap up, not just in text form, like, here's what happened to Norman Bates, but you're giving context to why he does what he does. Because up to that point, it's a mystery. You know, why is he killing her? Why is he killing the the detective? Why is he on this killing spree? Is he killing for killing's sake? The psychiatrist, from his analysis, gives an almost complete explanation. And then what we get is that final moment where he needs a blanket and there's this long pause by the officer who hands the blanket off, looks at the detective or the psychiatrist or somebody. And then we get a, get the push in to Norman Bates with mother's voiceover. But that whole last scene, I think was a great exclamation point to the end of the movie. It really is. It really is. And I think it continues this theme throughout of playing with our emotions sort of, and how we see these characters as villains or whether we empathize with them or not, even though they're doing things that are wrong. We continually see Norman murder, and yet we now still feel empathy for him and are questioning the way that we perceive him because of this. And this idea that the mother personality is jealous and possessive, and so mother wants to kill anyone that she feels threatened by when Norman interacts with them. And it, and it makes perfect sense. It really does. Um, I think it's a great ending too, with him sitting in the holding cell where her voiceover, his is kind of protesting that the murders were his doing. Um, it, it's, it's really interesting. And, and then we get to see the car being pulled out of the swamp, right? So we know that Marion's body is going to be found but yet we have no resolution to this money that seemingly no one cares about anymore. So that's the interesting thing is that car being pulled out is done behind the closing credits. It's an afterthought, Aaron, which tells me that it's almost like a post credit scene. Maybe setting up a next movie. You know, it's what it feels like. Yeah. But when I, I didn't get that. What I got was that was just a means to an end. I mean, in some ways, I think the money was the MacGuffin. Like it was, it was a, it was a motivating factor that got her to the hotel or to the motel. Maybe it was the rain. And in a lot of ways, I felt like seeing that was a little bit damaging to my, to my experience. It didn't, I mean, I say damaging, at least very minimal. But I think seeing that, I would rather have gone to black after that great push in to Norman's face. Like, boom, the end. And let that close it out and leave it open to any kind of interpretation, any kind of emotional connection that you may or may not have. Because pulling the car out of the bog really opens up that line of questions of like, we don't really want to have answered. We don't really care about those answers anymore. At least I didn't. So to me, I felt it was a little unnecessary. I guess that's one way of looking at it. I would disagree. I really enjoyed it. Um, I Again, it makes me wonder, like you said, the money is a MacGuffin. It feels like that. Um, it's, it could be replaced with anything that is driving her character. The money is seemingly just the 
poor choice that put her in a situation that this unfortunate events happened, right? Um, the money isn't important as money itself. So it is very an interesting thing, but it's a unique way to end it, I think. I like it. And I like that it's during the credits, like you said, um, with the awesome score playing. It's not part of the film. We the, the film proper essentially ends in that interrogation scene. Or not interrogation. I keep saying interrogation, but it's more of a courtroom conversation. It's like a closing argument, essentially. Yeah, so it feels like. Well, let's go ahead and talk about our connecting points, which, if you're smart, you probably have already put together that we left out talking about, oh, I don't know, the most iconic scene in this movie. So, hey, that's probably what we're going to talk about now. Patrick, ours line up and connect, actually, really well. So I'll let you go, and then I will follow you up. Well, when we first get introduced to Norman, the real kind of exposure to him is in the parlor scene after he brings the sandwiches to Marion. She's just heard him fighting with his mother, and, of course, we don't know the ins and outs of that situation, but he wants to have dinner with her, and there's a lot of genuineness to that, and so he brings the sandwiches, they go into the parlor to sit down, she starts eating the sandwiches, and as a side note, I just love it when you can craft a scene around props and do it really well. I mentioned, I think, around Christmas that there's a great scene in White Christmas with Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye getting changed after their... Um, after one of their numbers, and they're getting ready to go see the the girls at the uh, at the other club. The dialogue that takes place while they're getting dressed is just I love the choreography in that. And so we have this these two people sitting across from each other, not sitting next to each other. Very kind of respectful. I don't know you that well. You don't know me. Here's your sandwiches. He doesn't eat. There's a lot of interesting things there. Like he's not having dinner with her. He's basically feeding her. And we start getting a little bit of where they're coming from. We get not her complete backstory, but literally where she's coming from. Um, he talks about his love for taxidermy, said, you know, it's not a hobby because a hobby is what you do to pass the time. This is what I do to fill it. And as she's talking to him, she's telling him about it's almost like she's confessing, like she's in a confessional and saying, forgive me, father, for I have sinned. And she's talking about sort of in this abstract way what she's done and kind of the wrong choices she's made. And that calmness, that serenity that Norman exhibits is inviting to her and it's inviting to us as an audience. And so I start kind of buying into, he's a nice guy. How could he be the one that potentially does this? And so for a fleeting moment, I was like, hmm, maybe I missed the whole, what actually happens at the end of this thing. But then she starts talking about his mother and this is the first instance we get of him kind of getting a little bit antsy. She talks about having him put his mother in a – and she stops and he goes, you mean an institution? Like a madhouse? And she goes, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. And he breaks up the conversation and he says something really interesting, Aaron. He says, we all go a little mad sometimes. And I think that for me – Seeing that or hearing that and then watching how the rest of the movie plays out, it ties in a loose way to the ending where I think he understands that he has those tendencies too. And so when he wakes up to realize that she's been killed, he genuinely thinks his mother did it. Like he does have those two halves that the psychiatrist plays off of and says they do exist. This is a real thing with him. He's not just 
playing it for sympathy or playing it for any kind of motivation. None of the murders were done out of passion or out of out of like like first degree motive. They were done for what he saw or what mother saw as justification. But this conversation sets that up. You have these two halves, these two different people that are one represents normalty and structure in Marianne. The other one represents this insanity sort of with Norman, but they have this mutual recognition of themselves as desperate. They have secrets to hide and even how both of the characters are, are lit. She's very, she's lit very well. She's very bright. Whereas he is kind of consumed by shadows and darkness. And so you're, I think Hitchcock, what he does here is he allows us to kind of see the black and white, but also kind of give us conflict because they're both dealing with deceit. They're both dealing with things they don't want to share or they feel like they can't share. And to me, I connected with both of those characters in that moment for both similar and different reasons. And I thought that was pretty great. That's awesome, man. I'm so glad uh, it, that was great. It was really great. And I, you know, part of mine actually is a direct, like I said, follow up to your moment. And it includes part of your moment. Um, that quote you mentioned is actually in my connecting point write up as well. So uh, mine is the shower scene, which is the iconic kind of scene in this film that follows the conversation in the parlor. And the reason this is my connecting point is twofold. One is because it's just technically brilliant. I love the shot of Norman sitting down to think. He's framed in the middle of the doorway. He's got his hand, or his head, his chin on his hand, and it's right before the murder. And then the camera's panning away, and it's like he's considering it. And I just thought that was a really amazing shot. It was like he's contemplating. And then it starts with that terrifying shadow entrance into the room and the knife being raised. And we think it's the mother. Um, it's all done without showing a single knife stab going into the skin, which is really cool. Um, of course, that fakes the audience out, um, as the wig does, making us think it's the mother. And then we see the blood going down the drain which is a really memorable shot. It reminds me of some of the things in Vertigo where Hitchcock does these spiral scenes and it transitions into Marion's eye and her dead face on the ground. The water is all over her. Um, the drops are, but it looks like she's been crying. It looks like there's tears coming out of her eyes. It's just really, really beautiful. And it makes me like go, man, Hitchcock can shoot a movie. So from a technical standpoint, I watched that scene and I'm just immersed in the artistic nature of what he has created. But the more emotional reason is there too. And that's because of how tragic it is to me that Marianne died before she could set things right. The quote you mentioned at the end of that conversation with Norman, um, where he is getting a little upset and he's saying, you know, she just goes a little mad. Sometimes we all go mad sometimes. And he asks Marion, he says, haven't you? And Marion responds, yes. Sometimes just one time can be enough. And her facial expression changes. Her demeanor changes. And, you know, this is where she realizes that she messed up. And you can tell she is planning to go back to Phoenix to get out of the situation that she put herself in. And there's a really sad irony in that the man 
who helped her notice this eventually prevents her from reaching that goal. And what's even worse is that we get to see how happy she is as she takes the shower. She's smiling. She's full of cheer again. She's no longer scared and full of guilt and worry. And she's full of life and feeling clear of conscience, I believe, and with a purpose. And then she dies. Her life is taken. And it's, it's awful, man. It, it breaks my heart. I have so much empathy um, for someone who made a bad choice, but I can understand why they did it. And I had so much hoped for redemption for that character. I think as an audience member, that's what you are just drawn to feel for them. And then they don't get it. Um, they're prevented that. And well, it's senseless. Yeah. And you mentioned that the one who gave her the motivation to change her life is the one that killed her. It further goes to reinforce the fact that he didn't, according to the psychiatrist, that, or he may not have. Because I'd like to think that there's a part of him that was celebrating that with her. Now, I think that was negated when he plays Peeping Tom for about four or five seconds. But creepy. I think it is creepy. Yeah, it absolutely is. But you're right. It's, it is ironic to see that her killer is the one that told her, move on with your life and, and, and find that redemption. And so it's very conflicting. But again, I think it's consistent with how the movie ends up playing out. Yeah, for sure. Well, that wraps up another episode here at Feelin' Film. Up next here in a few days, we will join The Rock and Jason Statham as they battle wits and bad guys in Hobbs and Shaw. We will also be bringing you a new FF Plus this time next week and then continuing our road down director battle month with our week two winner. Epic stuff. Aaron, thank you for another great conversation. and We will talk soon. Hey, everyone. Thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you. We also invite you to connect with us further by joining our ever-growing Facebook discussion group. A link to that is in the show notes, or you can just search on Facebook and find us that way. If you'd like to continue the conversation with me, you can follow the show on Twitter, at FeelinFilm, or connect with me in the Facebook group. I'm very active in both places and would love to chat. And if you want to connect with me, you can find me at Shoeless Patch on both Facebook and Twitter. Be sure to tag me in any comments so that I'll be notified and not miss you. Once again, thank you for listening. We'll be back soon. Until then, stay positive. And keep feeling filled.